Hey, Yahanyaks, welcome back to the Rambling Viking Podcast, where I'm going to bring my real State of the Union address, where I respond to President Biden, I'm just kidding, I'm not doing that. Everybody and their mom did that. I think half of Congress did that, all the political pundits did that, at least on the right. There were 17 different ways to get the real State of the Union, or a response to the State of the Union. Don't worry, I'm not doing that here. I haven't even watched the State of Union much less any of those responses. Uh, ben Shapiro put out one that was 10 minutes long. And I was like, that's 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 good, right? And kind of summed it up and was just refuting everything, basically. He said, surprise, surprise. I mean, State of the Union is all pomp and circumstance. Don't worry, though. Since that's what everyone's talking about, that's what I'm not going to talk about. Being Nihanyak, who barely paid attention, yes, I will go back and watch it and might mention some things from it. But all in all, don't really care that much. I don't really care to hear from a dementia-ridden old man in the president. In the, in the Oval Office, personally, but yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do as the title indicates. I'm gonna try and do my book review in a little bit more timely fashion than the last one, but also there's a lot more that I didn't retain because there was a lot of high level words, i.e., ten word, ten letter or more, ten plus letter words. The longest one I think I didn't even count, but it seemed to be about fifteen to eighteen letters, and a lot of sciencey stuff that I. Tried to, you know, I tried to underline stuff and mark stuff in the book and went back through it and made notes myself, but it's one of those where it's like, go listen, you can go listen to his podcast episode on Joe Rogan where he briefly touches on a lot of it, but honestly reading the book and getting his full perspective because so much is clickbait and, uh, but we're going to try and do the book review and we're going to try and get it done. It'll, it should be shorter than last time. Here we go. Famous last words every time, right? I'm sure I'll get into it, but I think I've got a pretty good review formulated and got my document. We'll see if I can manage to not just completely stumble and fumble and bounce around through it. But I walked through the book and was able to kind of break it down by categories and I'll give my general thoughts on the front end and on the on the back end. Also, you know, I'm experimenting with this carnivore code and eating an animal-based diet, which I just love that term in general. So even if I'm not full-blown carnivore for the long haul, I think animal-based is the way that I'll go. And I've really enjoyed it so far. Well, sort of. <laughs> As you know, liver was rough to eat. And uh, fun fact update on that liver. I So there's this account called Liver King. And this guy, it's a nine ancestral tenants he lives by. He's a psycho, to put it simply right he's a crazy person who is taking this to the extreme but is pretty entertaining he's also jacked huge it's wild but he you know well, that's one of his staples obviously he's called liver king he believes in eating the organs and hunting and doing that so there's a lot of good tenants about it but my buddy seth was because i was you know i'm looking for ways to how to best eat and consume liver the most palatable way and, and get accustomed to it well, he put me on to him. He's like, check him out. And I watch his Q&A and, uh, or, of frequently asked top 10 FAQs that he gets. And one of them, of course, was how do you cook your liver? He says, cook my liver? What are you, he goes, what are you worried about that? Quit being a little ba- baby man boy or something like that. <laughs> and, and just get you a little slice and throw it back. And so that's what I tried. And six minutes later, seven gags later, two failed swallow attempts. I I finally got it down. <laughs> Combining with throwing in in mid chew, you know, as, as I was chewing, it was so chewy, it was slimy, it was gross. I've never been in, I've never had so much involuntarily gagging from a food before, but that was, it was rough. And it was maybe like an ounce, ounce and a half. 
of liver. But I was like, man, I should have even put this into like tiny little bits. It was too, still too large of a chunk. And I did get it all on video. So I'll figure out, I'll probably share that on the YouTube. I don't know if I can share it on the YouTube, on the YouTube page for the show. It's Rambling Viking Podcast. I will also possibly share it on Instagram if it can. Facebook should be actually, actually be no problem. So we'll see. Instagram's a big question mark on this one because I'm not a big enough account or what I, what have you. But maybe since it's a technically a business account, maybe it'll work. I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, and you'll see me eating pineapple and eggs, trying to offset and help you know combine it with other stuff so that it'll go down easier. You see me like throw my head back, try and swallow, and it almost all comes back up. I mean, at one point I was like, okay, have the plate ready just in case one of these gags gets too heavy and I, and it all just comes out. So would not recommend. Then of course, realizing I haven't read the nine tenets, it was made known to me. It's like, Hey, go read his little ebook. He has an ebook. The liver King does. And where he talks about kind of how he prays. Apparently he's real big into like brown maple syrup and brown sugar. And I was like, that would make it a thousand times easier to eat. So I'm going to look into that and figure it out, figure out the ways to eat liver. Do not just straight up eat it raw. I mean, whether you soak it in maple syrup, whether you heavily salt it, whether you even just a quick pan fry and leave it just to get the outside crispy. That is all. I know I said it was rough, but nothing is as brutal as raw liver. And this was beef liver. So yeah, go, but I'll put Liver King's page down below. He's kind of crazy. Oh, kind of crazy. He's crazy. He's intense. And it's kind of, and it's pretty entertaining. He also is a mass. He lives on like some massive ranch in Texas somewhere. And I mean, he's doing very well for himself. So it's worked. Classic case of there's a psycho going all out on one thing and builds himself a whole livelihood for it and is doing very well. So I'm impressed at the very least, but all right, that's enough of that. Let's get into this book review. So read the carnivore code by read the carnivore code by Paul Saladino. He is a medical doctor who has since really devoted his entire life to researching and looking at and questioning all the everything we know about health and what we're told to eat, you know, and it's really goes, he goes at the whole, at the notion of, you know, eat more greens, manage your meat portions because meat can be harmful. Obviously the underlying issue here that I think that I'm going to say from the outset, that is very clear is that whether you go plant-based, whether you go animal-based, and this is probably because this is such a hard conversation to have, you know, is meat bad for you? Is meat good for you? Is Going vegan, good for you. You know what's what's bad. It's so hard to pinpoint because people eat so much in their diet, and there's so many things that affect your health. And whether you exercise, whether you don't smoke or drink, or you, certain things like that, whether you don't live a risky lifestyle versus health is so holistic, and there's so many variables that it's hard to. Now, so we go off what we can go, and I've even watched a couple of. Uh, a couple of critiques of his podcast episode and he's done some debates that I've gone back. I haven't listened to them all yet, but I'm working my way through the debates. He did a series where he refuted the game changers. That was very good. Cause that was a controversy and it was very, it was all very interesting. So all in all though, I can say that that, so that was my book for February and I'm looking to read books 
a book a month. I've got Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life queued up for March. I do not have anything past that. I have some ideas of some books that I might like to read, but I don't make the final decision. I'm going to just, I'm going to ride the lightning with it. So if you have some book ideas or suggestions, I mean, it can be self-help, it can be philosophical, it can be something like this that is, you know, totally kind of random. Please send me your suggestions, but all right, let's get into it. So the Carnivore Code. So that's Paul Saladino's background, and he's pretty interesting. He was a raw vegan at one point. He went to PA school, became a PA for a few years, went to medical school, became uh, now he's a medical doctor, and he shifted totally carnivore. And he he's his whole thing is living radical, and it's pretty interesting. And I think he makes some good points. And really, the general sentiment is like, hey, we should look seriously, question and look, and really try and analyze health because that is something we've seen over the past a hundred, say a hundred to one hundred and fifty years, a steady decline in certain health measures as the world has shifted, as life has shifted. Right, everyone now more so lives a much more luxurious, sedentary lifestyle. Desk jobs are common; it's less hard labor, and so people are less active. But also, we've introduced a lot of more processed foods, industrial farming, industrial. I mean, the food industry has become very industrious, and you know, you walk up and down the aisles. There's 17 different kinds of Oreos and all this highly processed food, and so what we learned about that. And so, and, and it's very, it become very convoluted in the last 10 years. I mean, there's been a real health kick of people going vegetarian and vegan and being plant-based and you have the impossible burgers. And that's, that's kind of mainstream accepted. And he just kind of takes the stance of, I'm going to question all of that and I'm going to dive down into research and I'm going to see what the science actually says. And he makes a lot of his own assertions based upon what he knows. And he's very smart and looks at this at the microbiological level. It can be kind of a difficult read. Don't worry. I didn't understand much less retain. I mean, a mass amount from this. There's plenty where I was rereading on my book review and I was like, holy crap. I was like, I forgot all. I was like, I don't even remember reading this. Like I rem- I know I read this, but I don't even remember reading this, but it is a very good book. And it's just about 300 pages, but he breaks it all down. And he has a cookbook now, which we also bought. And I haven't fully, I haven't, I wanted to get through his first book and then read the cookbook because it's got like 50, 75 pages up front that kind of is a quick rundown of the carnivore code and what, and, and what you do with that. So, and the whole thought process behind it. So he does that, but, and I urge you to just keep an open mind here. Because the biggest thing that we see is that he, I mean, his perspective is totally different and he throws a lot of stuff on his head. And I'm not going to sit here and say that it's bulletproof by any means, but I think it does call for a robust discussion and a rethinking and it's worth trying out in my opinion. So the basic, I mean, the basic premise of the book is that we have gotten a lot wrong. When we look back evolutionary um, and... So I know, you know, realize I'm a Christian one on evolution and Christianity and how does it coincide? And it's like, I'm kind of putting that to the side for this because for the sake of trying to just understand his argument and where he's coming from and based on what science, you know, proclaims and what we know. And I talked about that a little bit in my book review about how I don't really ascribe to like, I don't really care that much about whether I think there is, there's evidence for evolution. And so we... It's not totally antithetical to Christianity. That's just my personal belief. And I don't really, I don't have a hill that I die on as far as I'm a, you know, 
literal creationists, six 24-hour days, young earth creationists, only 10,000 years old, or what have gap theory, whatever you want to call it. But he takes he takes a look evolutionarily and then he microbiologically and looking at data on plants and what meat and then he goes straight at a lot of the common misconceptions. So it turns a lot of it on its head. So a lot of when you read, you're like, what? Really? This is literally the exact opposite of what we hear, what we've been told, all the mainstream ideas. And it's worth noting that when you really look at, when you look back in the last 60 years, how many times have health recommendations about food been wrong and been off? And you might say, well, the, you know, it wasn't very good science and it was conflict of interest with like big, big sugar or big meat or big whatever. We know that big tobacco, you know, there were, did tons of misleading stuff. Now we have all rules and regulations. It's all clean, right? And I'm just like, it may be better, but those problems still exist by and large. And honestly, I mean, the food pyramid is, we now know is kind of total garbage. And now it's my plate and it's shifted and there's so many changes and it's like, wow, everything that we were indoctrinated with on how to eat and what to eat was actually in a lot of ways and for a lot of people, totally wrong. So it's worth saying, okay, maybe are we wrong about this or are we just maybe slightly off? It's not really that he's saying we're totally wrong. I think it's just saying that we kind of are looking at a situation and saying, oh, this thing is present on, and he uses this analogy in the book, but the best analogy I can think of is you, uh, someone's house down the street catches on fire. And so everyone comes out of their house and you go over and you're like, you know, on the street in front of this house burning and the fire department shows up and they look at you and are like, did you start this? And you're like, no, I just ran out of my house five, you know, two minutes ago. I called you guys. And then being like, you're under arrest. You were a part of this fire. And it's like, whoa, I was there, but I wasn't the cause by any means. And that's really a lot of his case in being me. And from what I have learned and into beyond this, that's kind of what the premise that I take on is that a lot of times when we study and what, what the, and, and everyone kind of accepts this standard American diet is total trash garbage. And to then go jump off, you, so start from that standpoint. So a, when we study nutrition, it's like anything's going to be better when we, when we're like, okay, so what if they ate healthy compared to the American standard diet, standard American diet? And it's like, whether you go plant, whether you go meat, you're going to see improvement, right? So then the question becomes, okay, now out of those two, which one, which one is better? It's almost like when you look at two people who are trash fighting and it's like, okay, what if we, but what if we looked at, you know, this fighter, it's like, okay, it's way better than this fighter. And then those two fight though. And it's like, okay, it's a very different story. Obviously, Fighter, you have fighter A, total trash garbage, standard American diet. You have fighter B, who's meat, who's like good sourced, and we'll say animal based. And then we'll say we have fighter C, who's plant based. And so we all agree that B and C should kick A's butt. But between B and C, which one win? Not really sure. And that's the conversation we need to be had. And that always needs to be taken in consideration when we're looking at health data a lot of times and understand all the different nuances that go with that. So this is turning more into a lecture and less of a book review. So let me try and get, get back on track here. I think it is a great book. I think it is not bulletproof. And I think it is worth the read and considering. And I think you, it is worth, it begs a lot of really good questions that make sense to me. And there might be plenty of data to refute a lot of what he says, but at the same time, who's to say he's not wrong? So 
I see meat as that neighbor down the street who gets coupled with a lot of bad stuff, but was actually had no involvement whatsoever and is getting blamed for the fire, but it just showed up to the fire and actually is someone who would help get water in and pour water on the fire. So because what we see it's it has to do with a combination of what we're eating with this is one of the cases he makes in the book of what we're eating meat with or what we're eating with meat and how we couple you know because the classic what's the classic analogy meat and potatoes and whatever and and these vegetables and all these other things and it's like okay so we meat then gets coupled with this a lot of food that's either unhealthy or just highly processed or just confuses your 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 body's energy systems and systems with operations. And so that can really screw it up. And it's, and what Paul's doing is saying, okay, just take meat by itself and look at going more animal based and healthy because everyone is always like, yeah, just go plant-based, cut out the meat and go healthy, whole plant-based foods. And yes, we all agree that's healthier, but nobody really wants extrapolates that very often the other direction because meat is so readily demonized. It's a lot of times the first thing to go, but some basic facts that we know that I already knew before reading this book is that a lot of animal meat is the most nutrient dense. It has what nine of the 13 essential amino acids that we need. And it's, it's very new and, and the bioavailability of it, you know, it has good animal protein that a lot of times absorbs better than uh, a lot of the plant proteins and things like that. And, and so it's like, why do we not then, remove all the crap around meat and try and put better stuff in around meat. And maybe some people try and do that and they do just fine, but that's really where he's coming from. So, uh, the biggest thing I can say about this is he advocates. So notice I said animal based. And I think a lot of times the word carnivore makes you think steak, 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 and more steak, maybe some eggs, maybe some bacon, but it's just a bunch of steak and ground beef and, and, and naked burgers. But his whole philosophy is nose to tail. He, he, goes in a very ancestral route and talks about how, you know, we miss, when we think of meat, we think of muscle meat and that's all we think of. But actually there's so much more to the animal that, and so then you think of, okay, there is nutrient deficiency there. If you only animal, of course we don't do the same thing with plants though we don't say well you just eat this one type of plant no no no. when you eat they say like eat the colors of the rain you know you eat all these different plants mixed in you get a good smoothie it's got seven different kinds of plants in it but we really only eat one kind of meat or one kind of animal thing and now you throw in your butter your tallow your ghee which i learned are things tallow and ghee are like an animal-based alternative to butter that are less processed that are pretty good they're an alternative to seed oil something that he is vehemently against and I can kind of go along with it, at least try it out, right? So his big thing is nose to tail, meaning you eat organ meats, you eat connective tissue, bone broth, bone marrow, things like that. And you, just like if you grew up 300 years ago and you were maybe a backwoods person, no, backwoods, you were just somebody, you know, who hunted. It's like you didn't just take the muscle meat, you took or especially in ancient civilizations, you know, you ate every part of the animal. Big thing is, you know, when you put the decisive blow in the animal, a lot of tribes, what do you do? You, you get to eat the heart and that is the rite of passage. And like now heart sort of is a, it's an organ muscle. It's a really muscular organ. So it's really like a muscle meat, but that's his big thing is that especially the organs getting into organ meats, particularly liver, 
and then also kidney, but then also there's other organ meats that you can get into and eat as well. But those are the two big ones. But then eating things like getting the connective tissue, making good bone broth, bone, doing bone meal, collagen, things like that really is what is, is his entire philosophy. So that's the first thing out of the gate. So that, that can be different than several people where it's, or, or certain carnivore people where it's like they just mainly eat steak. Yeah, I don't think that's a, a smart, sustainable way to do it. Some people can do it, but I don't think, and I think that's the misconception with it. It's kind of like if probably people, when they think vegan, it's like, so I just eat kale salad all the time, right? And it's like, no, there's there's much more to it, right? So for him, though, liver is the superfood. And he has a great chart where he compares kale, egg yolk, liver, steak, fish row and something else. I'll pull it up in a second, but, and it, and it gives you a breakdown. You look at all the micronutrients. I'll actually just go over that now, because like I said, here we are, we're just bouncing around. Yeah. We're just bouncing around. Sorry. If you hear some popping, I had to move some things around. Sorry. Burst your eardrums, but let's see what we got. So I believe it was 129, but, and it, and illuminates you're like, holy crap, like liver, which by the way, you've already heard me talk about. It's kind of disgusting, but you see, just just off of that, to me, I was like, oh, I was a lot more receptive to this idea and concept of a nose-to-tail carnivore because I was like, that makes sense already. We're talking in a more holistic fashion, also more intriguing fashion, and 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 that which ultimately leads to saying plant or sorry animal-based, meaning you're eating animal products, you're not just eating their muscle meat. So here we go. So it's got blueberries, kale, ribeye, beef liver, fish roe, and egg yolk. And I mean, I'm not going to list all the vitamins. You can go check it out. I'm sure he's posted this chart before, but it's per 100 grams. And he highlights the the categories though, under each food item. If, you, if it has the most nutrient of that nutrient, it is highlighted. It is bolded and dark. And liver has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine of the probably 14 or 15 nutrients listed here. It has, it is the leader in a lot of those. And then it's a close second, one, two, three, four, five, six of them. And I mean, it kicks, kicks kale to the curb. Kale has it beat on vitamin C and calcium and then potassium and zinc. But it has it's close behind on potassium, zinc, vitamin C is kind of a landslide, and then it doesn't have much calcium. But for example, egg yolk does. So it's very interesting, right? That's this entire concept is nose to tail, and it's really cool how he broke up this book. And it's very helpful. It makes it a simpler read, and it's kind of interesting because you actually you read the intro and everything, and then you read the last, for me at least, I read the last two chapters, three chapters, and then you go and read the rest of the book because those last chapters are actually how to do the carnivore diet. He's like, if you're interested in starting the carnivore, go read these chapters, and it's all how to do it, and it's great. He lays it out very simply. So the book is done in four sections. You have section one, which is human history and tracking evolutionary progression. So that's that evolutionary side where he's like, okay, let's look back on humans, what they ate and how that affected our evolutionary progression when say they shifted, you know, we became more hunters versus gatherers and how that changed things. And his biggest case is that we see exponential brain growth and, and evolution in our gastrointestinal system. 
in our thoracic region and kind of a general shrinking of that, of all of that. It's, and, and then massive brain growth right around the same time that we believe, you know, fire was invented and we started hunting and, and we discovered that. So it's a very interesting correlation that he notes. And he says after that, and then we've seen some brain shrinkage as we eat less and less of that, we'll say ancestral nose to tail type. Right. No, section two breaks down the chemicals found in plants and the disparate operating systems. So, uh, oh, sorry, the first section I almost forgot. It also looks at this is the beginning of agriculture when we started farming and what he said, what he calls the allure of the seed and how that, you know, he posits that it actually, in a lot of ways, while in a lot of ways it did help with people not starving, in in if we, when we're looking at just the nutritional aspect, he believes it hurts us in a lot of ways because it's the allure of the seed and it's actually harmful. And then that ties in, kind of segues into section two where he, he starts looking in-depth at plants and the microbiology, how they interact with us and a lot of studies. And one of the biggest things that he, he sets the stage for is called what I call disparate operating systems. He breaks it down this way. You have plants. They have their own operating system. You have animals. And they actually have their own operating system, but then they have two very distinct subset operating systems and then you have fungi and it's kind of funny. He's like, do you have fungi or kind of plants, but not really. So they do their own thing and he doesn't really talk about them, but, and he, he, he makes it like this. He's like, all right, it's like Tesla, Apple, and Microsoft. They're all very different, right? You can, there is some crossover, but by and large, you can't use, you can't loot or, or it's better to say Tesla, Porsche, Ferrari, whatever. You can't use Tesla parts in a Porsche, vice versa. And so why we think that, you know, the best things for us are something that come from a totally different operating system and have different chemical makeups. You know, the best thing for us is in our operating system. So logically, that at least checks out. Now, the important subsets that he addresses are you have monogastric and ruminants systems under the animals. So those are two subsets. And we understand it. So like your cows, your deer, your grazing animals, they have ruminants, multi-stomach, where they have systems that are in place that help them break down certain plant chemicals. And it's very labor-intensive. Lots of chewing goes in the first stomach, comes back up, you chew it, and goes in the second stomach, third stomach. And it's a very hard process, but they can do it. For example, cows are chewing for eight hours a day, chewing and trying to eat just because so they can break down and get those nutrients out of the grass, the hay, the wheat, whatever they're eating. Where we are a monogastric system, meaning... We don't have that, and we don't break down a lot of the things that the the ruminant animals can break down. And so there's a crossover. There's the ruminant. You know, they are herbivores, and so it's, yeah, they're in the animal operating system, but they operate using whatever. So, I mean, right then and there, you might say, there's some, there's some holes. It's not flawless. And like I said, it isn't flawless, but it's an interesting way to think about things in a lot of ways and does make some sense. And, you know, for us, it's like, okay, you just steak versus you eat this. And it's like, you're not going to, I mean, the classic example I go to is corn. It is, it goes unscathed to the naked eye through our system. The same way it looks the same going in as it does coming out. I mean, we've all seen the, we've all had those corn turds where it's just like, oh, it looks like, it's, it looks like a mostly naked corn cop with these exposed kernels. And, and I was like, so what did those do for me? just gave me some flavor, I guess. I thought I'd like chewed that and it's looks like I didn't even chew it in some ways. So that's enough poop talk though. So that's, that's his basis. And then he goes into why that is and talks about certain things and how they elicit responses. Uh, and I'll get into those in more, 
more as I get break down each section. Section three, he addresses myths, uh, myths, the common nutritional myths around meat and how it's bad, but then also around plants. So he can, and that's where he gets into comparing nutritional value of plants versus animals. So superfoods, fiber, you know, meat shortening your life. Meat is a carcinogen. It makes your heart explode. Cardiovascular gives you cancer, all that stuff. And then section four, which is the one that I read first and that if you read this book, you might read first as well is how to live the carnivore code. And it's a breakdown. And he talks about the knit in within the carnivore code. He has different tiers, which we'll get into. Right. So some interesting things. Now I'm going to try and hopefully summarize and keep it under an hour on all the thing, you know, some of the key things that I learned and there's going to be stuff where you're going to be like, well, why didn't you talk about this aspect of that? And it's like, well, I didn't, ha- a, I didn't have a lot of underline and I didn't have the time to go back and just read it and, and make a lot of notes. So I'm trying to figure out this whole book review thing is all my second one too. And it's like, I don't want to give too much away. Right. But one interesting fact that I do want to make known, and I kind of already alluded to this in some ways by talking about how crappy the standard American diet, but he says, according to data, 88% of people have some level, some level of insulin resistance and or metabolic dysfunction in our Western population. And I believe this is mainly on America, but at least Western modern populations, developed countries. So basically everyone, and, and he says at some level, right? So it could be the most minimalistic, like, oh, my resting, how, you know, oh, my resting heart rate is, is 73 instead of 70. And I prefer it to be 70. And it's like, okay, you they're both, those are both fine resting heart rates. One, obviously being lower is better, but it's not like you, by being a little bit high, you're not detriment. You're not, you know, up around a hundred or anything. So it's not, but you could still improve that. Right. And so that's kind of the premise he's coming from. And I was like, wow, that is very interesting. It's also one of those things where like, well, it's not surprising. We know that there's the biggest, I think pandemic and driver is we have obesity and being overweight notoriously. So especially being from Oklahoma, one of the fattest States in the nation, I mean, come on, super fat. So, and that's just, and that I think ties into more than just diet, but it's like we, the crappy diet and then a sedentary lifestyle. And it's like, wow, best of both worlds or worst of both worlds. And it's really making for an early combination. And so he points out and makes it very known that that is, we're working from below average. You know, it's, it's almost like we're working from, we were just in a comatose for 10 months societally and now we're up. And so it's like our much muscles atrophy, we got to relearn a bunch of stuff. And so we're starting from, so when we start talking about studying diet and looking at all the different studies and whatnot, like I said, a lot of this that I, I, you know, you have to take so much with a grain of salt and just under, or at least understand that, okay, this may be coming from a place where someone who drinks smokes is sedentary and has the American standard diet. So of course, if they make some changes and start exercising, and, and a lot of times these studies they, they combo it right. Here's a healthy diet, and here's healthy regimen of exercise and and how to live and get sunlight and whatnot. And so of course, yeah, they're gonna do better, and it's important to acknowledge that. But then then you can look even further and say, okay, how much that can be attributed to this, and have that conversation. So for me, this wasn't surprising to learn, but it's one of those things where it's like I know this, but then when I hear it said out loud or read it on paper, I go, geez, that is just wild, right? So that was that, I mean, he kind of kicks off the book with that. And he, he also talks about too the flaws in medicine, which I believe more and more and specifically Western medicine is more about teaching you what pill to give instead of actually treating root causes of things, which can be tied to, as we'll get to later. And I think, uh, 
you know, that metabolic dysfunction, that insulin resistance, inf- chronic inflammation, and, and getting at the root cause of, okay, what's causing that? Let's change your lifestyle. And I think a lot of people acknowledge that, that I think, I, I think medical degrees need to be either split or more specified, which more specified, right? I'm going to be a neurosurgeon, cardiologist, all this need to be, be understanding and, and kind of look at, look at us more holistically because like I've already mentioned, so many variables affect every single little thing. It's all connected. Studying kinesiology, I mean, when you look at the body, it's like, okay, I have this pain right here. Well, that actually is because this muscle is connected to this and this, this, this. It's like you could track knee pain to something in your back or vice versa. And it's just because your body is all connected. Same with this. And so it was, but, but there was an interesting observation because you know, he went through medical school. He's a practicing physician and medical doctor and very knowledgeable. And this is like really what he's dedicating his life work to is now become this and looking at diet and saying, you know, have we been, where have we been misled? Where, you know, what do we believe that's, that's wrong? And, and so he talks and he does that by talking a little bit about his personal story. He dealt with eczema most of his life until he went fully carnivore. And if you don't know, Jordan Peterson, his daughter, Michaela Peterson, both, and, and lots of people have seen extreme benefit from going full elimination and going carnivore, like strict carnivore, and have improved their autoimmune problems and eliminate them in a lot of ways. And I'm sure the same is true about vegan people, but I'm if you know, like in Jordan Peterson's case, he tried to go vegan and it actually made things worse. So... That being said, I think we can, at least on some level, and this is kind of still where I fall, but it, it can be individual to individual. I think there are general principles that may be more true or less true, but then at the, it's also very, it can be a very much an individual game depending on, you know, if you have autoimmune and what they are, if you have other problems. So plenty of things. But uh, he also then adds to that that he tests and retests all of his markers, does blood work constantly, and... To track it because he wants to know. So, I mean, he's sparing no expense. He looks at every single thing down to the microbiological, right? And he then brings in a general question of talking about quality of life because a lot of people look at this and be like, well, I can't eat all these good foods. And he says, well, what are we saying is quality of life? Is it meaning living an optimal life, having optimal health so that you can be able to live the way you want, do the things you want, be active as long as possible because, and this is an interesting question, right? Because if I'm 95 and completely debilitated and dementia ridden, there's no, personally, I think there's no quality of life there. You know, I'd, I'd rather die more or less a healthy, active 75 than live to be a debilitated 95 in a lot of ways. Now, barring, does that mean I got to see more of my grandkids and whatnot? There's obvious questions to go in there, but in a general sense, right? We all want to keep our mind and keep our body or at least keep one. Preferably for me, it would always be the mind. My body can go, but I think it's so hard and sad to see the mind go. So that's kind of how he sets the stage in the book. Then he goes into the history of humans, and I already touched on the brain growth, the shorter GI tracks, and then he talks about how we've even looked at bones, and we see, um, this was on the agricultural front, They archaeologists go and they look at bones of ancient civilizations, and these are civilizations that lived pre- and post-agriculture, and so they he, you see, and he points out certain differences in average height of men and women and certain markers in the bones that indicate certain problems, whether health-related or 
uh, certain health-related problems that they had when they switched to a more agricultural-based diet instead of being nomadic, following the animals, eating really carnivore, ancient, you know. And then they discovered the seed in farming and started eating that. And it was interesting, you know, the, in some in one of these, he points out, it, the average male went from 5'9 to 5'6, and then there's certain indicators on the bones indicating problems here, problems there. And it's very interesting to see. And it's like, huh, it just makes you think, you know. It's like, okay, how healthy was it? Also, you know, you think what kind of things were they eating? It goes into that. But that's, that. he talks about the history of humans. And then he, and then... Once again, staying kind of almost the philosophical is what I'll call it, or at least the abstract, and just trying to make some logical statements, really, and build the logic behind this, and or, or at least extrapolate his logic of why he thinks the way he is. And he talks about, so what's the, and this is something he does on Joe Rogan's podcast episode he's on, which is always in, is in the link. He, he says, you know, plants can't run away. So looking at it from the evolutionary progression standpoint, so if you can't run away, you're stuck on the ground, what do you do? You develop defense chemicals or mechanisms that you do. And he points out a lot of those in plants that actually there are certain chemicals that get emitted when like a plant or a leaf starts to be chewed that is not present in broccoli is one of them. I can't remember what it is, but is not present in broccoli until you start to chew on it and it starts to see that sensation. Then it starts releasing this chemical and it's a defense chemical. It's meant to inhibit certain bioavailability of things, which means absorption of certain nutrients that may be present, but they won't get absorbed. And it's also kind of to disrupt. So to why? to dissuade them from eating at least this part of the plant. Cause you, you know, we all look at fruits obviously and it's like, okay, the fruits are meant to be eaten and then crapped out. And so they can grow more fruits and that's how they reproduce. So that fruits are, are unique in that. But in a lot of ways looking at, you know, eating the stems, the roots, the leaves, those sort of things, it's like, that's not meant to be eaten because that's not how they spread their seed in a lot of ways. So and he talks about that's the difference between plants and animals is animals, you know, they have claws, they have teeth they, and their biggest thing is they're mobile. They can run away. And so they didn't have to do a lot of these defense chemicals. And so he points that out, and that's a very interesting thought train to follow, but also logically makes sense to me. And, you know, he, then he dives into polyphenols, which I hadn't really heard much about, but you might be aware of. And a lot of these other molecules that are found in plants that are supposedly super healthy or antioxidants, and and he really kind of begs the other side of it and not just saying, Oh, well, what if they are bad? And then just, it's all conjecture. He goes off, presents data and looks at the, the microbiology involved and how they're processed in our bodies. And then points to certain data that could suggest and could support this, his hypotheses. And a lot of them aren't even hypotheses. It's like, Oh, this seems to be proven. So polyphenols is one of those, you know, it's and resveratrol and cumin. Now those two things I've heard of, right? touted he begs to differ that they are actually good for us and he goes into all the details of it which i don't think i yeah i don't have in my notes here so we won't go for it but those are two that he kind of turns on its head and makes a pretty good case for it and talking about how actually you know while they do have in in with cumin or curcumin even he specifically references talking about chemotherapy and cancer and aligns them aligns a little bit with that and it might be hyperbolic, but it might not be, but it's a good thought experiment at the very least. He says, look, we understand that you know, chemotherapy is harmful chemicals to our body, but it kills the cancer. And so it's like, yeah, we're harm doing self-harm, but to kill this harmful thing that's seemingly more harmful, right? So killing a bad thing, killing a worse thing with a bad thing. And he says, 
that's kind of based on what he's seen. That's that's how cumin and curcumin acts in our body. It's like, yeah, there is some benefit, but it also causes all these problems. And so, and when you do cost benefit analysis, it's not worth it. And so he's like, but you know, it's, it's one thing if we're treating cancer, but we're not, we're just trying to live a healthy life. And so it's like, why would we do all this damage to ourselves to do a lot of good stuff? And he, what he points to in a lot of ways, DNA damage. I mean, I'm talking at the cellular level stuff you don't even think about. So it's very heady. Another interesting fact that he touts, that's a general fact. So pesticides, right? We all know about pesticides and they're bad. Where do pesticides come from? They come from plants. Synthetic pesticides are developed from certain plant chemicals, but actually 99% of the pesticides that humans ingest or come in contact with are from the plants that we eat. Not So less than 1% is from actual sprayed-on pesticides of plants of, say, if you forget to wash a tomato, then you eat it. Most of the pesticides come from those plants. I thought that was wildly interesting. I was like, huh, no had no idea. Had no idea. And their phytoalexins would be another term for them. Then he goes into sulforaphane, which is not only in broccoli. It, or, sorry, so sulforaphane is that chemical in broccoli. It's not present when broccoli is just sitting there. You chomp it, all of a sudden sulforaphane everywhere. And he talks about why that's not good for you. Then oxalates, you know, we've heard of oxidative stress. Now we've heard of antioxidants and prooxidants. Obviously, antioxidants are good. Oxalates are something that also develop kidney stones. So he talks about that and they're excreted typically in our urine and uh, elicit what we call oxidative stress, which long-term, the more oxidative stress you're under, the more damage it does to your body. So you don't want very many of those. And he talks about plants that are high in oxalates and so promote oxidative stress, can promote kidney stones and just DNA type damage and cause problems. And with all this, he says, you know, we've been convinced that we, we only talk about the good and we've been convinced to look at the good and just kind of ignore the bad. Not enough people look at the bad and say, hold on, is, is, is the good worth, is the good that we're getting worth the bad? Or sorry, does that make sense? Yeah, but anyways, is it is it worth it? And then moving into antioxidants, something that he talks about is he talks about that actually antioxidants, a lot of antioxidants in plants, and he gets into the specifics, they they actually are pro-oxidants. So we have our, our antioxidant system that we have built in, it's called our NRF2 system, meaning when it detects oxidants, it releases antioxidants, and so then promotes health, right? But that's what it's, what are we also undergoing that we're going oxidative stress? And so he says a lot of these antioxidants, when you actually look at them on the microbiological level, you see that they are really pro-oxidants, activate the NRF2 system, i.e. bring us under oxidative stress and cause us then to, um, so yeah, they bring out antioxidants, but then when they see, when he looks at specific studies, oh, this is something that I forgot to mention, but I'll, I'll talk about here. And when you look at interventional studies, you see that it, it, so immediately after eating and maybe for a day or two, you see, okay, an up boost in antioxidants in the body, which is good for you. But long-term you see no sustained antioxidant level because you basically, it only acts as a response in eating these chemicals. So it's like, okay, you eat something bad and you do something. And he talks about how we've, we, we convolute hormesis and, uh, environmental versus, I can't even think of the word right now. Environmental versus biological or molecular, whatever you want to call it, 
or food related. Well, I can't think of the term. But specifically on studies, before I get to that, he points out there's important differences. You have epidemiological studies, which are observational. So meaning we look at two, we look at populations and we see, okay, how much meat did you intake and what, yada, yada. And so within that, we look at correlation and then you can test some correlations and see if they're statistically significant, meaning, and then say, then you can make the claim that, okay, these, there is some causal effects between these two that are correlated. But a lot of times it's just looking at correlations. And then we see, he points out a lot of extrapolations that are made out of certain correlations that are maybe a little bit erroneous. And he talks about how, okay, we build a hypothesis off epidemiology and then you do an interventional study where you mean you go and you study the specific thing and build, you know, double blind placebo trials, whatever, where, where you can actually test and you can eliminate variables and control for as many variables as possible. And so that's an important distinction. Now I will say in fairness, I watched some critiques and he then in turn can sometimes reference certain epidemiology that fits his narrative. I think that, and I'm like, hold on, didn't you say this was bad? Now, a lot of times, though, he does acknowledge it says this is epidemiological, so we can't we can't make this as a concrete statement. But it is interesting to point out. And so, and, and what he's saying is that that is not acknowledged enough in general. When 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 he is refuting a lot of these epidemiological based findings, he says, look, they didn't they didn't acknowledge. Say, look, this is just epidemiology. We need to try and study this through interventional studies and do and really study this in depth, but, but there is some correlation so we can build that hypothesis. And then he, so what he does then is these hypotheses that are stated as fact, basically he goes in and he's like, no, and he turns them on their head. So on the note of hormesis, if you don't know what that is, it basically means putting your body under stress for positive reasons. The most basic thing would be going to the gym. You put your body under stress and it's actually health. It benefits your health. Same things like cold and, you know, and getting sunlight, those sort of things. And he says a lot of times that same mentality is put into the biological level around the food that we eat and saying, well, you know, it, it's hormesis, right? And he says that, that actually isn't a one-to-one comparison because it's very measured and concrete that about environmental hormesis, but there's more questions around the molecular hormesis that we undergo from food. So it's very interesting, right? And wow, that was actually my next point. So I even, I mean, wow, good job me. So continuing on the study point. So it's interesting. So he, he states that a lot of our health knowledge is based on observational epidemiology. And then he brings on, which by the way, he has so many references so many times you see the innocence, you'll see four little reference numbers. But he, so it's like, okay, he looks at that and then he goes and looks at interventional studies that then tested the hypothesis that was put out in a lot of ways as just fact or, and it gets proved wrong or proved that, okay, yeah, there's a correlation here, but there's actually no causal effects. And that's one important thing. And he does a good job of pointing out a lot of these chemicals and a lot of things. And especially once you get into meat too. And of course there's still some questions where it's like, I don't think he's totally bulletproof because the point of science is, is it's not bulletproof. It's not like the Bible where we look at the Bible and it's like, no, this is truth. This is God's word. And it's, you know, unmoving, unwavering science. We're always learning more. We're always learning more. So 
Another thing that's related to these studies that he covers is healthy user bias and unhealthy user bias, which I've kind of touched on where it's like sometimes these studies will say, okay, this population didn't eat meat and they saw better than this population that did eat meat. But then when you look in depth, you say, okay, well, this population that didn't eat meat also made a bunch of other health choices, meaning staying away from harmful substances, taking extreme risks, and also trying to live a you know healthy lifestyle, being active, being outside. And this other population did none of those things. And so they're polar opposite lifestyles. And the best example he has of that, which I'll actually get into. And so then, you know, then they demonize the meat based upon that. But then when you actually look into the details of it all, you see that, whoa, you can't really do that. It's not really fair to the meat. Because one example that he, that he touches on is, and, and I'll, I'll eventually have to walk this back, but there's this Seventh-day Adventist group out of California that was studied. And Seventh-day Adventists, if you don't know, it's plant-based, but they also, you know, they don't smoke, they don't drink, they don't do caffeine and sugars and, and they, they exercise. And so it's a very health conscious culture built around that religion. And then you have Mormons. So, well, so this group is plant-based and they, and based upon the findings of, you know, how much healthier and all cause mortality and, and cancers and whatnot. And it's like, oh, they didn't have these problems. And well, they do plant-based. And it's like, hold on. They also have all these other factors. So then what you do is you go try and find a population that lives almost the same or similar as possible, but eats meat. And he points them out. Surprise, surprise, the Mormons. And they, he says, there's a group of Mormons. They do, they, which they basically hold to the same lifestyle, except they allow meat in the diet. And he says, and you see the same outcomes, like positive outcomes compared to, say, the general population that you do with the Seventh-day Adventists. And so you look at this and say, okay, so it's two groups that one eats meat and one doesn't, but they live fundamentally the same and they both saw these positive outcomes. So is it fair to then say that the meat was the problem or that there's other factors and variables at play here? Like, oh, you're making good, healthy, conscious life choices as well as that. So... Really, when and once you kind of get through the book at the closing statements, you see that it really comes back to that 90% of us have, have some sort of metabolic dysfunction. Insulin resistance and inflammation are the two big eyes, though. And that's what he now posits based on all the research he's done and the patients he's helped is he says, when you really start diving into things, you see that, okay, there's markers for inflammation, chronic inflammation and whatnot. And then that, and then when you have inflammation and say you try and ingest certain things like maybe meat or, or you do certain things and it causes problems. And he goes, but we don't realize is that when you then look, okay, so maybe start eliminate this from your diet and eliminate that from your diet. Inflammation goes away. Now you eat the meat and it's like, oh, this is actually better for you. So there's, there, there was almost something blocking you and it's like you needed to get this bad out so then you could have, so then when the good comes in, because when the good comes in with the bad and then we say, well, it's actually causing this and and he says that, and he talks about how a lot of things, if we can eliminate this chronic inflammation or, or, or level of, in, whatever whatever level of insulin resistance you have, then we can, then you're starting from a healthy or healthier point or, or healthier, a better baseline and then jumping in. So, it's, it's interesting, you know, and he says a lot of times we look at it, we just treat the inflammation and saying, wait a minute, what's causing this inflammation? And let's look at your diet. And I don't know about you, but personally for me, I'm, that's something I'm much more before reading this too, but now, especially after reading this, I'm much more in tune and in tune with and aware of and going to think about 
when if if I start having problems, it's like okay, what's time? Maybe we cut this out and cut that out, and so and that's what's part of whether you go maybe more plant based or you go animal based like this, and you eliminate crap from your diet, and then you maybe start to reintroduce it, and then you can figure out what your body likes and doesn't like and works with. So I've got some notes on some of the specific things that he talked about. Flavonoids, they're endocrine disruptors. So a lot of studies that he finds is actually leads to infertility problems and, but lots of hormonal issues. So in a lot of ways it promotes estrogen. So it's interesting. And on, and so that's like, okay, so some of the some of the fun facts here we go. Oxalates, they have microscope when you look at them under a microscope, they have spines everywhere. They are the number one it's calcium oxalate that are kidney stones. And but oxalates are, have been known to screw up a bunch of systems. So oxidative stress and they they have been tied to a lot of things like cancers, neurological disorders, kidney stones. Kidney stones are the are the most well known one, but there's, there's lots of things. I mean, there's one study, they looked at breast cancer, people who had breast cancer and it's like, then there were oxalates found in the breast tissue. So it's like, okay, maybe there's something there. We need to look at it. Right. Interesting one that he saw was lectins. So that's like beans and things and legumes where he says they, they actually mess up our guts. And it's kind of funny where he talks about, he's like, yeah, just because you have more gas doesn't mean something's working right. It actually, that's, that's your gut being like, ah, messed up, right? But when he looked at lectins, he sees lots of problems with, it messes with our intestines. And a lot of the problems, so I said inflammation starts from the gut because it messes up the gut and that leads to messes, messing things up. One very, very interesting thing that population he looked at was the population of Parkinson's and the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is tied to your gut and he, and he looked at, he, he looked at some studies and whatnot and talked about, okay, so eating these lectins, they where they they cut the vagus nerve so there was no more connection between the gut and the brain and he said lectins and they fed these two groups of i think they were rats lectins and the ones that still had their vagus nerve intact saw neurological issues that would be we'll say similar to parkinson's because it it what it would do is it would have these it would overload these block these neural dopamine receptors in the brain, similar to what Parkinson's and other neurological disorders do via the vagus nerve. And when that was cut and that highway was no longer existent, it couldn't do that. And so it was like, wow, crazy, interesting and thought. I mean, the root of the story being that our diets affect us more than we realize and could have a lot more root causes founded in things, particularly in neuro, certain neurological disorders, whether it be dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS, whatever you want to call it, autoimmune problems, so many things. And at the very least, this makes me think about and more aware of those things. So another thing that he talks about when talking about disparate systems, different systems, is that there are certain nutrients that are only found in animal foods. Uh, some, some, to list some of those is B12, choline, creatine, carnitine, and blah, blah, blah. His take on fiber is wild. So what do we all know? Fiber? It's good for keeping you regular. Well, from from what he has seen and the data he's dive, dove into, it it can make you poop, but it does not relieve certain gastrointestinal issues like bloating or gas or discomfort. And one study I remember it was like, okay, they didn't they were going, but it was unstable. So it can make you poop more, but it doesn't make you poop better. And he looked at these studies where it was like high fiber mid mid fiber and no fiber and the no fiber saw the least, most improvements and they came to the conclusion these are interventional studies that 
fiber had no significant improving markers for for your your bowel health. And I was like, huh, very interesting. And I mean, he even looks at he looks he doesn't look at just look at constipation, but colon cancer, microbiome, environment, and intestinal health in general. So very interesting take on fiber. I, you know, I'm not, and I'm not taking this all as scripture, but it is something to look at, right? And now consider. So now we're going to turn. So we, we kind of talked to covered about the plant molecules. So now meat being demonized, he dives into that, right? One big thing that we hear is that meat's a carcinogen. It causes heart problems and can cause colon cancer. And a lot of that comes from this meta-analysis that was done in 2015 where these researchers got together for two weeks and they looked to port over 800 studies to build this meta-analysis. And then they come to the conclusion that it's a class 2A carcinogen and it has links to heart problems and cancer and all these things. Well, then in 2018, they did a review of, they did a meta-analysis review of that 2015 one. And what do they find? And this is one of those things where it's like, you know, maybe just don't believe everything you take at face value, but be willing to dive into the the research, do your own research. Now it's a buzzword, but dive into it yourself. And this makes that case for, and I think that reading his book is one way you can do that because he provides so much specific data. So 800 studies, right now you, you don't expect them to use them all for methodological sample size problems, methodology problems, you know, and and they're going to just try and look at the best ones, but you don't expect them to only use 14 of the 800 studies, but that's what they did. And then you don't expect that out of those 14 or that, that all of those 14 are epidemiological studies, eight of, and that eight of them. So over half showed no link between meat and colon cancer. And then of the six that did sh- show a link, only one showed a statistically significant correlation, meaning you can then assume some causation between meat and colon cancer. And you know what it was? I referenced them earlier is that seventh day Adventist group who also has, does 17 billion other things to live a healthy lifestyle. So kind of blew that whole thing up. And, but it's interesting that you see that. It's like, why would they do that? What is the incentive there? And I don't know. I can't answer all the questions about narratives at large and why certain things are more popular the way they are, but that's the way it is, right? So moving forward, more bad things about meat. He he presents a lot of data supporting that meat does not independently contribute to colon cancer. And I've already talked about this so many times at nauseam, but that it's what we eat, it's in it's in combination, right? It's like in conjunction with that causes a lot of problems. And the other question, and so he, he kind of dives into that, but then he starts trying to answer a lot of these questions. Like one of the big questions that he always gets when he talks about carnivore is, well, once you get scurvy and he, then when you look into it, meat ha- can have up to 15 milligrams of vitamin C and organ meats especially can have a lot more. And so when you eat an actual nose to tail, you actually get plenty. And also he then points out to other studies where they studied scurvy and as little as 10 milligrams of vitamin C can keep you free of scurvy. Now that's not to mean that's that is optimal. And he does acknowledge that in one podcast I listened to where they brought that topic up. But, you know, if you can eat a cut of meat that's 15 milligrams and you eat some organ meats that has some more, it's like you can get plenty of vitamin C. 
Now the big bugaboo, cholesterol, right? So LDLs, if you know anything about cholesterol, LDLs are the bad ones, HDLs are the good ones. Your LDL level, you want to keep that lower because then that's less arterial plaque. So he kind of goes at this. Now his his entire premise is based upon the fact of if you do not have metabolic or like dysfunction, then high LDLs aren't necessarily a marker of uh, something of concern. Or to to say, hey, you're at risk for something. So now, like we talked about, though, 90% of people do, or almost 90%. So it's it's kind of one of those, it's a little bit of a catch-22 because you're like, okay, well, we're, we're not talking about most people here. And so most people do. And so in general, I still think it, it can be a good basic marker, kind of like if your BMI is 47 there, that, that is telling, I don't like BMI when you start looking at people who are maybe more athletic or lean, because for me, I've always been overweight, but I have always had a more athletic build according to BMI. But when you look at body fat percentage, like I haven't had a body fat percentage, you know, at most I'm in the mid twenties, but I've always probably been in the teens. And so it's like, that's not very, um, that's not a risk factor then. And, and so it's, it's once again, it's like it can be on the surface level helpful, but then maybe you need to dive into it a little bit more. And there's the front, it's like the Farmingham, Framingham, Framingham study, which is a big, huge study. And it saw that, you know, the greater your LDL, the greater CVD, cardiovascular disease risk you, you had. But then he has an interesting chart where he then says, well, when you also look at the same people's HDLs, you see people who had, so maybe they had high LDLs, but their HDL was high, which is a good thing. They, the lines change when you group them by from low HDLs to high HDLs, the low, if you have low HDLs and, and high LDLs, that's like the worst of both, you know, it's being sedentary and eating standard American diet. That's yeah. Super, super high risk for CBD. But then if you have, say you have high LDLs and high HDLs, you're actually very low and the lines are almost flat on the chart he uses. So it's very interesting, right? And then what, get ready for this, when he starts going in on HDLs, HDL has can have a tie to insulin sensitivity. So the higher the HDL, the better the insulin sensitivity. And what do we know? Most people have some level of insulin resistance, which means they probably have lower HDLs, which means ILDLs can be a good marker for your risk for CVD, right? And when you're insulin resistant, what happens? It, I, I don't remember the mechanism, but basically he says we have, we always have LDLs and cholesterol is a part of immunological response and transporting and like actual health. You need cholesterol, right? You can't have no cholesterol. You die. And there's always millions, if not trillions, billions and trillions of, of, of those molecules going through our system. And so he looks at it and says, Okay, so just raw having more LDLs isn't necessarily bad, but but then it's like, what is the environment in which you have those high LDLs? And the term he uses is, um, when you're insulin resistant, you have sticky LDLs because plaque builds up when they get stuck in these arterial walls, and then it continues to build up, and they only get stuck when your microbiology is more sticky. And basically he says, so when you, you know, we were metabolically healthy, they're not sticky. So they go in and out of these arterial walls, delivering all the uh, lipoproteins and lip phospholipids and things. But then when you're not, they're sticky and they stick and you get plaque. Cause he talks about his LDLs are through the roof. And he talks about it on the podcast, he references his number, but he does, he just references that they're it's high in, in the book. 
And there's like 400 or something. And, and we're told that it's supposed to be 100. But his HDLs could be 90, you know, and could be insane. So he also references LDLs as being that person, like that neighbor down the street who shows up and thinking it's blame for the fire. But it's like, no, I was just showing up to see what was going on. They take part in, in immune response. So it's not necessarily, it is, but it isn't about the amount, the raw amount of LDL. You have to take in consideration your HDL, which has a tie to your insulin resistance, which has a tie to how sticky your LDLs are. So it's all interconnected, this one giant web. Guess what? End of the day, super complicated. So that is his book, though, more or less. Oh, that is the the hard part of the book. Then those last few chapters dive into the carnivore diet and what it looks like. And he actually built out, and this is helpful, so five tiers. So tier one is 80 to 90% animal products. Like you're eating mostly meat, and but you allow some fruits and some vegetables, which he actually still eats fruits. So you allow some certain vegetables and non-animal products into it that are the, as he would put, the least toxic, right? Number two is, or tier two is elimination, meat and water. Like that's all you do. Nose to tail, you go meat and water, you eliminate everything else, and then you start to reintroduce stuff to see how it affects you. Tier three, you add in eggs, seafood, and dairy if you if you can handle dairy. Tier four, you add in your organ meats. So it starts to get interesting. You add in connective tissue, bone broth, and then tier five, which is the ultimate, it's more organs, it's connective tissue. He even he even is a proponent for being ketogenic, meaning you you only he only eats between like twelve and three every day or something like that. So he has very limited eating windows, so he can be in ketosis. And he talks a lot about that. And he says, you know, he recommends doing it on a clean carnivore reset, meaning doing 69 days, kind of going hardcore, all in on it, to really just kind of reset. And just like we know about what do we, we everyone knows about you know, cleanses and, and detoxes and whatnot. And then he even the one of the one of the final chapters is, is very interesting because he talks about the environment. He goes all hippie and talks about climate change and how actually when when you eat meat and not eating you know, eat more meat and animal based products and if you do it smartly and get things places from regenerate what he calls regenerative farming which is a more which is a move away from the industrial farming you get less environmental impact negative impact and particularly within plants so he closes out the book though by having a bunch of faqs he says you know i of course get all these questions so i'm going to try and answer a bunch of them and, it, and it's everything from you know, grass-fed, grain-finished versus 100% grass-fed, which he thinks it's 100% grass-fed, you need to do, and he recommends going to your local butcher. And so really kind of this callback to going away from the big box industrial grocery stores and, like, really bringing it back to the local community, which I think as a whole, societally, is something we need to kind of move back towards. We went towards the urban urbanization and the big industrial farming and just mass-producing things, and we see now that that's all right, but we need to maybe cut back on that and try and support local and also do small businesses. So he has a bunch of references. So some of those are meatheels.com for testimonials. Then if you're looking for meat, good source meat, white oak pastures, that's his number one. He like is partnered with them, has a supplement line through them. Bell Campo farms, force of nature meats. I've looked at them, Joyce farms, and then eat wild. If you just want to find a farmer near you that you can talk to. So, that's and that's how he closes out the book but that's my analysis and book review if you want to call it 
So, and, and his kind of premise. So basically, I, I, I look at this and I think it's very compelling. And I think it's a compelling enough case to, despite whatever flaws there may be in some of his logic or the things that he cites or the arguments he makes, I think the general sentiment of trying to move away from highly processed foods and move to whole, local, as, as much as you can, locally sourced foods, well-raised foods, is a good thing. So even if you look at this and you gawk and you're like, ugh, I hate meat or you have problems with meat, whatever. I think the general sentiment remains the same as a lot of people who we associate when you hear, you know, oh, you're a vegan. And a lot of people do it for ethical reasons. And I think, well, there's an ethical move to go the carnivore route. And that's the route that I'm going personally. And I do want to openly, I mean, I should have done this on the front end, but like my personal proclivity is definitely always towards meat. You can call me a meat head if you want. So in some ways I'm looking at this and wanting it to be true because I love meat and I love this mindset. I, I hate vegetables and hate a lot of those things and don't enjoy them. And so it's like, I want this to be the correct answer, but I'm not opposed to seeing that it is, that it is not in certain ways the correct answer. But from as far as I can tell, it is right. So that's my process. So it's, I highly recommend this book. It's something that asks a lot of great questions and turns a lot of great common knowledge, health topics, ideas, whatever you want to call them on their, a lot of health knowledge on its head and really, and, and, and in a good way too. It's not just some kooky dude out there going, ah, what about this? But don't you think about this? And, and it's like, dude, you, you're not even, you don't even have anything to back this up. No, he's done his research. He's done his homework. He put it in this book. It's, it can be challenging to read, make you fall asleep sometimes, but it's all in all a very, very good book. I highly recommend the carnivore code and I highly recommend maybe trying going animal based with me. If you want to join along or if you have gone, what's your experience been? I'll tell you right now, so far, it's doing pretty good. I had, I've had heart. I haven't had kidneys yet. I've had liver. It's disgusting. I'm trying to figure out how to best eat it. Uh, tongue, which I've already had before, which is very good. And I'm cooking with tallow and ghee, and that's interesting. I actually like it a lot. So tallow is rendered animal fat, and then ghee is similar to butter somehow it's like rendered dairy stuff so if you don't do dairy do tallow and i've been able to find that at whole foods and he and so it's, it's been very good he has a podcast though it's if you look at paul saladino his podcast will come up it's health i can't think of it right now and i don't have it written down but it's it's very good it also has an audiobook form if you're an audiobook person so you can go get the audiobook of it and it's pretty great. I will warn you, don't get too distracted doing other stuff because I mean, at least with reading, it's like, that's where, that's where I'm looking. My mind can wander, but definitely I know with listening, you can be doing other stuff. And it's like, if it's easy listening where they're talking about basic things, using small words, he's going to be talking super high level, heady science in some of these parts. And so it could be easy to, you just heard a bunch of words, but you might as well have heard it in Russian because you didn't understand any of it. So definitely go read the carnivore Goat code go check it out especially i think if you're someone who has autoimmune problems and you've been trying to solve them or you have certain metabolic or health issues this there there may be answers in here that could significantly and seriously help you and it's like if you're serious and of course you are serious about getting better and wanting to improve so give it a try why not and some of the objections you might say well it's more expensive and it's like actually the butcher bacon that i buy is 9.99 a pound that's the same at the store and it's i can personally say eating a lot of butcher bacon now it is so much better it's thicker cut the flavor on it like when it cooks and i don't know if it's just fresh or what it hasn't been shipped across the country in package i don't know but it's amazing 
So with inflation, those stuff has gotten more expensive, but you can still, I think if you're going really all carnivore, a lot of times the satiation of it, like you can only think about eating a pound or or two pounds of meat in a day, so much meat. And you feel like, oh man, I can't eat that much, but you could eat a pound of, I eat a pound of Cheetos in a day and a pound of Oreos and a pound, <laughs> so many, you know, two pounds of those things and no problem. And then don't get satiated. And so that's something to consider. And it, it is a little bit of an adjustment and it can be more expensive. If you really dive into it, like fish row, which is caviar, salmon, eggs, not eating that. So more sensitive. Well, it was still a lot, but this one was this, this breakdown was, was only four and a half pages on my notes. And I actually, what you don't know is I was scrolling through and was like, okay, on to the next point and then go, Oh, I actually talked about all that. I need to go on the next one. And so that's why there were some pauses or some, it felt a little weird at moments. That's what happened. But I mean, I'm going to give this one a 37 out of 37. Amazing book. Now feel free to go look at the critiques, go listen to his podcast episode for an easy three hour introduction. <laughs> if you don't want to go in and read the book, cause I'm sure the audio book is a lot longer than that. But I mean, go look on his website, go watch some of his YouTube videos. He's definitely an entertainer. Like he makes content that's not just, which is what you have to do, but you can tell definitely sometimes he's setting it up and likes to be a provocateur in some ways. But I mean, that's what content people will watch. That's why I watch it. It's because it's funny and it's actually, there's some entertainment value. And so sometimes I'm like, oh, okay, dude, you're just being a little wacky for me, but I just want to know the details. But he has a recent video where he talks about what he eats in a day and how he eats and it's crazy. <laughs> It's actually not that crazy. There's plenty of fruit around and, and he allows for some, for some fruit. And so we've been eating some fruit and I'll be honest, I'm not hardcore, totally carnivore, mainly because we got a lot. I'm not wasteful. I'm, you know, you know me, I'm anti-wasteous. Got a lot of food that is not on the car, that is not carnivore cleared and is still here. And I don't want to let it go bad or go to waste. I'm not just going to throw it away. So I, I still eat it in small amounts, but I'm, t- I'm, I'm tier one in the sense I'm like 80 to 90% carnivore. Plus we still eat out and there's a delicious burger place I heard about that I'm going to go eat at. So I still, I mean, I had Chick-fil-A yesterday, right? But I try as much as I can to, so I mean, my breakfast and my lunch is almost exclusively. And then, you know, four out of the seven or five out of the seven dinners I eat in a week are within the carnivore code. And I'm trying to introduce organ meats, which you got to go to your butcher and be like, do you have organ meats? And I found one that does, but that's one, that's one trick about this. That is really, is like, we don't sell all you find is muscle meat. And notice he hasn't talked about chicken at all. Chicken is in there, but he's really, he he's getting at red meat specifically. Beef is his mainstay. He doesn't really like pork because of what pigs are fed. And, I think chickens may fall in the same boat, but he doesn't, he doesn't really even address chicken. He does a little bit, but not really in this. It's mainly seafood and beef. So that's very interesting, but yeah, it can be hard to find. And yeah, it's a little bit of work. You might say, Oh, it's some work. But I go back to is okay. I mean, how do you feel now? You know, you, do you feel crappier than you want? Is your health crappier than you want it to be? Why not take a stab at this and try it out? And maybe so a lot of people, it's like, I tried carnivore and it didn't work. I tried vegan and I'm thriving. And it's like, great for you. Find what works for you because it, there may be some nuance. And go. you can at least go really heavy on the elimination side and then reintroduce certain things and see how you respond. So you also... Fortunately, he has those FAQs in the back where he talks about how to, or in the carnivore code portion, where it's like, well, if you're constipated, maybe you need more of this. If you're, if you have, if you become a chocolate rocket, an uncontrollable chocolate rocket, here's how you deal with that. If you have this, if you have trouble sleeping, 
here's how to deal with it. And he addresses a lot of those too in the book. And it's very helpful because then it's not just like, eat this and you're not going to have any problems. He goes, no, some people, and that's where he acknowledges the individuality. He says, some people are going to have problems and that's fine. Some people are going to have issues and, and here's how you deal with these issues. And here's what I think is maybe the cause of those issues. So yeah, it's a little bit of work, but it's, but it's fun enough. It was a fun adventure to go and try and find some local butchers. And also the quality of meat, whether it's actual organs or like steaks and whatnot. And then you get from local butchers is much better. You're supporting the local farms. I found out that so much of our meat is imported, particularly from New Zealand. I guess they have high quality meat, but, and I'm like, that kind of bums me out. I want, I know there's plenty of farmers and ranchers. I mean, look at Texas, <laughs> look at that place and where, where beef is made. So why am I not getting that beef? And I guess maybe it's not the high quality. That's the low quality stuff. I don't know. But if you go to the local butcher, you're most likely supporting local or localer farms and whatnot. And then you can build a relationship. They can get to know you. And then maybe you can start getting fun stuff. So I haven't made my own bone broth yet, but got his cookbook. Look through some of his recipes. Some They're very good. He, and I mean, he has carnivore waffles, pizza, all sorts of things. So it's pretty good, but definitely check it out. Give it a read. I think that's enough for this book review. That has been my second book review and I will be starting 12 rules for life. If you have read that and want to give your input on your personal review and send it my way to be on that book review, or if you want to read along and, or if you want to wait until I review it and then you'll have to wait to the end of March. So I'm going to start that though. That's going to be the next book lined up. That is your Wednesday dose of weird though. Not much weird. Well, I will say it is actually pretty weird turning a bunch of the stuff on its head, but I want to thank you for tuning in for that and hope you enjoy it. Let me know if you have read or are going to read the carnivore code and what you think of it. Would love to get all your thoughts. Maybe even have a discussion or if you've heard good critiques that you want to talk about anything and everything. Love to hear it. Make sure to send it in. Make sure to tune in. We got more blessings born out of tragedies, hopefully around the corner, but that does it for this episode. It's Wednesday dose of weird. We will be back here on Friday for your final dose of weird this week. And it won't be another book review, but you know it. So, all right. Thank you so much for being a part of the Hanyak Horde. We will see you right here on Friday. This is your head Hanyak signing off.